listening to Writers Forum on WRBH. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today I have the privilege of interviewing nationally known author Kent Kruger. Mr. Kruger has written, by my count, about 21 novels, including the Cork O'Connor Mysteries, and some standalone novels like Ordinary Grace, The Devil's Bed, and This Tender Land. He's received numerous awards over the years, including the Anthony Awards, the Edgar Awards, the McCavity Award, several of these being awarded on more than one occasion. Kent, welcome to the show. A pleasure to be with you, Mike. Well, let's, let's jump right in, and let me start off by talking a little bit about the art of writing, or at least asking you about it. Charles Bukowski wrote that he, he spent time every day writing. Some of the authors that I've interviewed had a favorite time of the day uh, or a favorite time of the week to write. Tell us a little bit about how you write and, and when you write. Well, I agree with Bukowski. <laughs> I think if you're an artist, I don't care what your medium is, I think you have to bend to the work every day. Um, so that's what I've done for the last 40 years. My alarm clock uh, has always gone off at a uh, quarter till six, seven days a week. I get myself up and dressed, and before the pandemic set in and required that we shelter in place, I would go to a coffee shop where I would spend the first uh, two or even three hours of the day writing. Uh, now that the pandemic has forced me to stay home, I've substituted my uh, kitchen counter for the coffee shop, but I still get up a little before six every morning and spend the first two or three hours of the day writing. That's interesting. Let me ask you this. Um, how do you start the process for a novel? Do you Are you somebody that outlines your character ideas or your plot, or do you just have an idea and start writing and see where it goes? Well, it depends upon the kind of story I'm writing, Mike. Uh, you know, I've written 18 uh, books in my Cork O'Connor mystery series, and uh, I approach those stories in a very different way than I approach my standalone. So mystery is a very tightly woven fabric of storytelling. Everything depends so significantly on everything else. And I think the success of a mystery depends largely on the timing of the reveals. When do you give the reader the clues that are going to be necessary for helping the reader solve the mystery at the heart of the story? So when I'm writing a, a, a manuscript from my Cork O'Connor series, I do my best to think that story through as completely as I can before I ever put my fingers to the keyboard. At the end of that thinking process, I know how the story begins. I know how it ends. I know who did what to whom and why. I know the important themes I want to weave through the story. But with a standalone, I purposefully look for a different approach. I want, um, specifically for Ordinary Grace and This Tenderland, I wanted a more organic approach. These are stories that came from a different place. They, they really came directly from my heart, and I wanted the reader to get that sense of it. So going into the writing of This Tenderland and Ordinary Grace, its companion novel, I knew only a few elements of the stories that I uh, was going to create, and uh, and I simply let the story reveal itself to me as uh, as I went along. Uh, in both of those books, I really had no idea where I was going in the end, how things were going to to wind up, and uh, and if at the end of those novels some things are a surprise to readers, well, they were certainly a surprise to me. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that authors often tell me is that if they create a good character or characters, the characters trying to take them where they want to go. Um, I even had a, a, an author in here one time who said his characters will tell him, no, I don't want to go there. Have you had that experience? Well, I think every good storyteller understands that at some point a story takes on a life 
of its own. It has its own energy, and if you're a good storyteller, what you do is just try to get out of the way and let that story go where it wants to go. And, you know, largely it's dictated by the other motivations of the characters themselves. So, yeah, I understand what the other authors are talking about. Well, let's talk a little bit about a few of your characters, for example. In this tenderland, you give us Mose, uh, a Sioux boy who cannot speak. And in The Devil's Bed, you gave us David Moses, an escaped mental patient. Where are those characters coming from, Kent? God only knows, Mike. <laughs> uh, David Solomon Moses for The Devil's Bed was mm-hmm. a character that I um, very carefully crafted. He had a specific background that would lead him to be the antagonist in that novel. Um, Mose, Moses in This Tender Land uh, was a character that came to me f- right from the very beginning, uh, fairly full-blown um, for those readers who might not be familiar with this Tenderland, it is in its own way an updated version of Huckleberry Finn. It's my uh, homage to uh, to Mark Twain. And uh, if you remember your Huckleberry Finn, Huck on his journey down the Mississippi River is accompanied by a runaway slave named Jim. Always in my thinking about this Tenderland, the story that became this Tenderland, I saw that character as being played by a Native American kid slightly older than my narrator. So I had Moe's in mind right from the very beginning, uh, at least in outline. Then I, as I, uh, as I thought more about the story and began to write it, I, I understood some of the specifics of who Moe is, particularly his muteness. Yeah, I want to talk to you a little bit more about that in a minute. The The reference to Huckleberry Finn is obvious, but you know, the other thing that struck me a little bit, um, and, and my memory is faded, but is Stegner's The Big Rock Candy Mountain. There was a little bit of that in there as well, I thought. Uh, well, that's interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm uh, a fan of Stegner's, but I wasn't at all thinking about The Big Rock Candy Mountain. You know, what? really, in terms of... Um, the setting for the story in particular, and maybe the compassion for uh, the characters we meet along the way. Um, I really owe a greater debt to Steinbeck, I think. Um, I love his stories, particularly those that are set in the Salinas Valley, where, you know, his love of that place is evident in every line he writes, and his compassionate treatment of uh, the underdogs in our in our um, uh, culture. So I, I think I owe a more a debt to uh, Steinbeck than to Stegner. Well, you know, you, you're saying that. Have you had this occasion where someone reads your book and they get something out of it that you did not see? Oh, all the time, all the time. Well, here's a really good example coming from this tender land. Um, you know, I knew about the influence as I was writing the story, the influence of, uh, of Mark Twain and uh, and Steinbeck, but when the the book came out, readers pointed out another influence that I was completely unaware of, and that's L. Frank Baum's The Wizard of Oz. Ah. So in, uh, in this tender land, there's the tornado, there is the witch, there are uh, four characters in search of things they don't possess. Uh, but I never saw that while I was writing the story. Uh, and as soon as readers began to point it out to me, it's like, oh, well, of course it's there. But, you know, Mike, what that simply tells me is, is that there is a lot unconsciously that goes on, or subconsciously, that goes on in the creation of any story. You're, you're never absolutely um, aware of all of the influences that, are, that come to bear on the work. 
Correct. Well, let me let's jump back to Cork O'Connor just for a moment. Did you start off envisioning that this would be a series? Oh, I don't think any author of a long-running series envisions that. Um, I think most of them are like me with uh, Iron Lake, the first book in the series, as I was writing the manuscript. I just wanted to write a story that was good enough somebody might actually want to publish it. Um, And then uh, toward the end of that novel, I realized I was creating uh, relationships that were going to be too complex to wrap up neatly at the end of the book. And I thought, okay, where do I want these characters to be eventually and when I when I thought about that place I I thought you know it's gonna take me like three books to get there and that's exactly what it did so the three first the first three books in the Cork O'Connor series you can look at as a, as a story arc and uh, and at the end of those three books I thought well I guess I do have a series going <laughs> well let's talk about your most recent book in that series lightning strikes it's actually a prequel um, that has Cork as a 12 year old correct that's correct. And what made you, how did you decide to reverse the chronology? Well, actually, it was at uh, pretty much the insistence of my agent. Uh, for years, my agent, for, for readers who, uh, who uh, are familiar with my Cork O'Connor series, uh, they may be aware that very often across the course of the earlier 17 books in the series, I have often had Cork reflect on events or individuals that were important in shaping him into the man uh, he's become at the center of the series. And for years, my agent has been telling me, that is really fertile ground, Kent, you need to be mining this. Uh, And quite honestly, I didn't have another idea for a novel at that point, so I thought, well, what the hell, let's give it a shot. And I'm really, Mike, I am so glad she convinced me I should do this, because I so enjoyed writing Lightning Strike. I so enjoyed... um, Imagining Cork as a 12-year-old kid and discovering the nature of all of the people around him at that point and the important people around him at that point in his life. Well, you know, the other thing that struck me about it is it, it gave you a chance. Now, you've done this in some other contexts, but it really gave you a chance to explore father-son relationships and the relationship between Cork and his father. Was that something you felt you also needed to do to complete his character? Well, I knew that his, for, for readers who might not be familiar with the Cork O'Connor series, Cork is the f- fictional, he is a fictional, he was at one point the sheriff mm-hmm. of my fictional Tamarack County. And when Cork was a kid, his father was also sheriff of Tamarack County. And so I knew that there was going to be a great deal of influence involved. And, uh, and as I've written made references to the relationship Cork had with his father across the other books, uh, I have um, indicated that the relationship, while quite loving, was also quite um, complicated. And I wanted to explore the the complications of that relationship. Um, And so, yes, that was one of the things I set out to do. I really wanted to explore the relationship, the mystery of the relationship that Cork had with his father. But, you know, that's not not the only important relationship in the story. It's also about the, the relationship that Cork has with his mother, the relationship his parents had with each other. Cork's relationship with, early relationship with Henry Malou, the, the, uh, the Mide healer, the, the Ojibwe healer in the stories, or Sam Wintermoon, who deeded Cork Sam's place, and especially Cork's grandmother, Dilsey, who's so important in helping Cork understand the, the truths of his native heritage. 
Well, when you write about these types of relationships, as, you, as you're explaining there, you know, writing, I hear this often, it can be very self-illuminating. Do you learn things about yourself and about relationships that you have as you write these things? Not in all of the stories, but certainly in some of them. A really good example would be uh, Ordinary Grace. Mm -hmm. In Ordinary Grace, uh, the mother of the Drum family, uh, a woman named Ruth Drum, was patterned after my own mother. And I had a lot of resentment toward my mother for reasons I won't go into. Sure. Uh, but the but in creating the character of Ruth Drum and exploring her situation, a woman um, in the 50s and 60s who who has this artistic streak in her, powerful artistic streak in her, and yet she has to um, she has to do other things instead. She has to be a housewife. Right. She has to try to be a minister's wife because that's what's expected of her. I began to understand uh, a great deal more about my own mother. And in fact, Mike came to a place where um, where I, I could forgive her for all of the um, all of what I thought of as trespasses in our relationship. I so see. yes, yeah. I think you can learn uh, from the stories you create. Well, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about This Tender Land, one of your standalone novels. Um, you set the story at the outset at a facility called the Lincoln Indian Training School in Minnesota in 1932. Now, I did some research, and in fact, if I'm correct, I think there were 15 or 16 of these boarding schools for Indians. Is that correct? Well, at the height of the Native American boarding school experience, Mike, there were actually approximately 360 schools across the country you know what? that were boarding Native children. I think there were 15 or so in Minnesota. In Minnesota, yeah, that, oh. uh, that's probably correct. Okay. Um, and how did you learn about these schools, and what was it about them that, um, and their history that caught your attention? Well, because of my Cork O'Connor series deals significantly with the culture uh, of the Anishinaabeg, the Ojibwe here in Minnesota, I, I've known about the um, that tragic period in our history that involved the Native American boarding school experience for, for many years now. Um, and... Uh, uh, but when I when I decided to open the the story, this Tenderland at a Native American boarding school, uh, I needed to really understand as 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 best I could the true horror of that experience. And so I did a great deal of research. You know, I have a lot of friends in the Native community. They're my age or they're younger. So they didn't go through the boarding schools, but their parents did or their aunties and uncles did or their grandparents did. But whenever I ask my friends, uh, can you tell me what your relatives um, explained to you about their experience, to a person they said they simply will not talk about it. It was so horrific for them. So I had to uh, do some digging to come up with uh, stories uh, from those survivors who were willing to talk about their experience. Now, it seems odd that I begin a story which is really about two white boys, two white brothers, um, at a Native American boarding school. But there was a specific reason I wanted to begin there. Uh, for readers of this tender land, you may not be aware of it, but I structured that story in the same way that Homer structured the Odyssey. Oh. And every experience that the vagabonds, the four vagabonds have during the summer of that, uh, of that novel, um, 
mirrors some experience that Odysseus had in his long journey from Troy back to Ithaca. And if you remember the Odyssey, where does it begin? It begins in a place where horrible things have, have occurred. And I couldn't think of a more horrible place for these kids to be running from than a Native American boarding school. And so that's why I began the story there. Plus, I already had the natural connection of Moe's, mm-hmm. a Native American kid, with the story. Well, can I get you uh, to read an excerpt from this Tenderland? Oh, I'd be happy to. Uh, I'd like to read the prologue, and I I like this for a couple of reasons, Mike. First of all, it's very short. It's just a little over a page long. But the other reason I like to read the prologue is is that, honest to God, I love this piece. (laughs) (laughs) So this is how I bring readers into this tender land. In the beginning, after he labored over the heavens and the earth, the light and the dark, the land and sea and all living things that dwell therein. After he created man and woman and before he rested, I believe God gave us one final gift. Lest we forget the divine source of all that beauty, he gave us stories. I am a storyteller. I live in a house in the shade of a sycamore tree on the banks of the Gilead River. My great-grandchildren, when they visit me here, call me old. Old is a cliché. I tell them with mock disappointment, a terrible trivializing, an insult. I was born along with the sun and earth and moon and planets and all the stars. Every atom of my being was here at the very beginning. You're a liar, Miss Galba playfully. Not a liar, a storyteller, I remind them. Then tell us a story, they plead. I need no goading. Stories are the sweet fruit of my existence, and I share them gladly. The events I'm about to share with you began on the banks of the Gilead. Even if you grew up in the heartland, you may not remember these things. What happened in the summer of 1932 was most important to those who experienced it, and there are not many of us left. The Gilead is a lovely river, lined with cottonwoods already ancient when I was a boy. Things were different then. Not simpler or better, just different. We didn't travel the way we do now. And for most folks in Fremont County, Minnesota, the world was limited to the piece of it they could see before the horizon cut off the land. They wouldn't have understood any more than I did that if you kill a man, you are changed forever. If that man comes back to life, you are transformed. I have witnessed this and other miracles with my own eyes. So among the many pieces of wisdom life has offered me over all these years is this. Open yourself to every possibility, for there is nothing your heart can imagine that is not so. The tale I'm going to tell is of a summer long ago, of killing and kidnapping, and children pursued by demons of a thousand names. There will be courage in this story, and cowardice. There will be love and betrayal, And, of course, there will be hope. In the end, isn't that what every good story is about? Bravo. All right, well, let me ask you this. When you write a novel like this Tenderland uh, that has historical aspects, how how do you know how much history to put in without detracting from the characters and the story? 
Well, it's all about pacing. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been a storyteller for a quarter of a century now, a, a published storyteller for about a quarter of a century. So I've learned about pacing and, um, and all of those things that can be deadly to pace. So when you do your, or when I do my historical uh, research, I, I try to include those details that will help nail the piece in place, but will be maybe a little surprising or unusual for readers. Um, also, I have, uh, I have a, a great editor who helps me <laughs> make decisions <laughs> about things that, uh, that ought not to be in, uh, that do in fact slow the pace, uh, because all of writing really is a collaborative effort between uh, the author and, uh, and the editor. Yeah, I was struck, um, and I'm, I'm sure this was intentional, by the fact that Moses Washington, Mose as he's called, uh, the Sioux Indian boy in the story, was mute. And having had his tongue cut out in an incident where his mother was also killed, um, is this you making social commentary? Yeah, Mose stands for something much larger than himself. He stands for an entire culture that had no voice. From about 18, the late 1880s, when the uh, Native American boarding school uh, system uh, was begun, until 1978, almost 100 years, in 1978, the uh, National Indian Child Welfare Act was passed. In all of those years, if you were a Native American parent, and the government came to you and said, we're going to take your children away, and we're going to cart them off to a boarding school hundreds of miles distant, and you will see them infrequently, or maybe even never again, there was absolutely nothing you could do about it. It was the law that you had to give the government your children. You had no voice. You know, one of the things that struck me immediately, having done my own research, is historically, slave owners would cut out the tongue of a slave they thought might lead a rebellion. And that, that is immediately what I thought of most when I, when I read that part of it, that, that this kid had the potential Anyway, it, were you aware of that? Uh, I was not aware of that, but you know, when I look at Mose, and if you read the story, follow the story, and you know where Mose ended up. Right. I mean, he ended up with a, being a voice for his people. Uh, I can understand it. Well, all right. So, in reading your biography, I, I, I had it. Confess, I laughed a little bit over the story of you getting kicked out of Stanford for your so-called radicalism. And when you write about historical injustice, sorry, in your several of your books, is this a way for you to continue your activism? Um, I suppose it is. You know, I don't get out on the streets and uh, as I did when I was much younger. And <laughs> I'm, I'm not um, running through clouds of tear gas as I did when I was at Stanford. Uh, but it is a way for me to uh, do my best to continue to have um, some effect on the world, um, make a statement for those issues that I believe are worth fighting for. And you are, and I think you say this at the author's note at the end of the book, you are in a sense continuing a legacy that you found in Charles Dickens on social, writing on social inequity. Um, yeah, you know, one of the things that I've discovered uh, is, is that so long as I couch whatever social issue I want to talk about within the context of a really good, compelling story or a really good, compelling mystery. Even readers who don't necessarily agree with my point of view are still going to read it. And maybe they'll, they'll, they'll be um, encouraged to think a little more broadly about an issue. You set, I'm going to jump back to this tender one and more specific. You set the book 
or the story, excuse me, during the Depression, something that I understand your, both your parents lived through, and you give us examples uh, in, in painting this tapestry of the Hoovertsvilles and the religious revival groups, the traveling groups, and your main characters are orphan children. And to my ear, it resonated with kind of an intertwining of both individuals and countries that were adrift at that time. Is that interconnection something you were trying to establish, or am I one of those readers who's picking out something you hadn't thought of? Um, I think it was simply something that was um, a natural braiding because of the of the story itself. Um, there were so many, there were hundreds of thousands of children set adrift from families during the Great Depression. So writing about four orphans seemed like a fairly a natural thing for that period of time. Um, and what I tried to do as I had the, the vagabonds on their journey was have them come into contact with people who are also struggling in their own ways. Um, because here's one of the things I wanted to, to explore, Mike. The, the question of who we are at heart as human beings, particularly during periods of, of great privation or when great pressure is put on us as a society, um, as we've been experiencing, you know, for the last year and a half or so of the pandemic, during these periods, are we the kind of people who retreat into ourselves and protect only that which is important to us? Or are we the kind of people who open our arms and despite how little we might have, we're willing to share it with others? And so as, the, as I was writing the story of the vagabonds and their journey, I had them come into contact with um, people who represented both sides of human nature um, because that's, I thought, the reality of the situation. But in general, the people that they meet are good, generous people. And again, that's kind of what I believe about people in general. Well, let me let me uh, end the conversation about this tender land with a, a question. The title, it seems to me, comes from a quote you attribute to a farmer in the book, a good good farmer in the book, who says that hard work is quote good work because it's a part of what connects us to this land, this beautiful tender land. Close quote. Can I ask what you're trying to tell us about our connection or lack thereof? to the land, and do you think that still exists in modern times? I think it exists less and less because we are less and less a rural population. Um, I think we, but I'm a Midwest kid at heart, and really so much of the Midwest is about the land. It's about farming. Um, this is the breadbasket of the United States, you know. Um, and I, I, I in just in my own belief system, when we lose that connection with the land, we lose a sense of who we are. Um, and those of us then who live in, in the cities and, and, you know, if you live in the city and all you do is spend your time uh, on sidewalks and asphalt and among concrete towers, you lose the connection with the land. But even in a city, you can go out and uh, here in here in St. Paul, walk along the Mississippi River, or in my own case, I do a lot of biking out on the trails that we have here, reconnecting. Because as uh, as one I Jack, the farmer who talks about the Tenderland, says, God is in the land. And here in the Midwest, I think we have an understanding of our relationship with the land. We take great pride in believing we shape the land 
but in turn the land shapes us. And uh, and so that was part of what I was trying to get across. Very good. Kent, thank you so much. This is all the time we have for today. This is Writer's Forum, and I'm your host, Mike Tusa, today. I've been interviewing author Kent Kruger, and we've discussed his writings and his latest Cork O'Connor novel, Lightning Strikes, and one of the most recent standalone novels, This Tender Land. Thank you so much, Kent. It's been a pleasure, Mike. Thank you for having me. Okay, until next time. 